the book of Matthew. And let me just encourage you, if you've missed any of these messages, be sure and go back and listen to these messages. Uh, we have them on our website, or you can also go on YouTube and find our YouTube channel and, and be able to uh, watch them, watch the services. Last week, we looked at one of the points that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in chapters 8 and 9, we read about different miracles that Jesus performed. And so I've moved a little past that. We, we, uh, aren't, we're we're uh, going to move to another part. So you had, at the beginning of Matthew, you had uh, talking about uh, Jesus coming. Uh, you had uh, where he began his ministry. Uh, it went into the Beatitudes. Although uh, he went in the wilderness, then they had the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And so now here we are. We're moving into... Uh, uh, another area in uh, chapters uh, eight and nine, uh, we see where he does miracles, many different miracles, and then we are going to be at the end of chapter nine of Matthew, the end of chapter nine of Matthew and the beginning of chapter ten. So, if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to be at the end of chapter nine. I'm going I'm to begin reading. At verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. It said, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Verse 6 says, When he, meaning Jesus, saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever looked at somebody and you could tell that something was wrong, something wasn't right? You just looked at them and said, man, they need help. They're hurting. They're... And that's the way Jesus was. Jesus is teaching the people, he's teaching the crowds, and he's looking at them and he says, man, these people are hurting. They're looking for something. They're helpless. They're needing something. Jesus had compassion on them. He said, we've got to do something. We've got to do some work. If you look up that word uh, compassion, it means that he had pity on them. <laughs> he had pity. Pity describes the deep mercy of God. Jesus sees that these people who are following him did not know where to go for help. Have you ever wondered? You ever wandered around? How many of you have ever gone on your uh, computer and you need help? <laughs> And you go and you click the help button, and that help button don't help, right? I mean, it's like it's helpless sometimes, you know. It's like, what? Why am I in this? You know, you're, I'm trying to operate in this uh, this program, and, and it's not giving me any help. But Jesus saw this group of people that needed a shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me." So, what does a shepherd do? You ever thought about what a shepherd does? They protect the sheep, right? When they're walking away from the group, the shepherd takes his uh, staff and he 
pulls them back in. He keeps them in the fold. He watches over the sheep. One of the main occupations of the Jewish people was that of a shepherd. The Jewish people would know what Jesus was talking about when he told them that he was the good shepherd. He had, but he had compassion on them. And then after he sees the crowd and he sees that they're very much in need of help, he then turns to his disciples and he says this to his disciples. Then he, verse 37, then he said to his disciples, harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's talking to him. He's telling them, look, there is a lot of people that need help. There's a lot of people that need to know the truth. There's a lot of people, but the problem is we don't have enough workers is what he's telling them. We don't have enough workers. In verse 38, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest. In other words, pray to God. Pray to God to send out workers into the harvest field. Now for me, I can imagine Jesus saying this, and I can, I can see that the disciples, they're kind of young, right? I mean, they've only been with Jesus for about a year, so they've heard some of his teaching, they've heard some of his messages. So what I can see is I see all the disciples just kind of going, hey, come here, guys, let's, let's gather around, let's pray, you know? And I believe they had a prayer meeting right there. They started praying for the workers of, of, the, of the harvest. They started praying. They started believing that God was going to, that they were going to be able to see new workers and see people come. And then look at what Jesus does. <laughs> After he says, we need workers, we need laborers, then in verse, or chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus says, he says he called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them, listen to that, he gave them the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And there, and then, then we get the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All 12 of them. He names them all right there. Matthew does. And any time, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but any time you see a listing of the disciples, there's about three or four spots throughout scriptures uh, where the disciples are listed, you always see something like this. Peter will always be first, okay? I mean, Peter is always front and center. I mean, he's the first guy they list, you know. Uh, James and John will always be mentioned together because they're brothers. A lot of times they'll have the title Sons of Zebedee uh, next to their name. Uh, and last is always Judas. Judas is always mentioned last. That you'll see that. And I'm so I'm going to take a minute and I want to examine the character of each one of these disciples. So some now some we know very little about. Some we know quite a bit about. And three of them wrote books in the New Testament. Also, anytime you see a list of disciples, you always seem to see them in three groups of four. So uh, in each group, beginning with uh, Peter. You'll see four follow him, and then Philip, and you'll see the you'll see Philip and three more, and then James, son of Alphaeus, you'll see another uh, four. And so it always seems to be how they always group them. But Peter, he's always mentioned first. And the interesting fact here is Matthew uses Peter's given name of Simon. And uh, uh, and here's the funny thing: Have you ever wondered what Simon means? Simon means one who listens. Now, does Peter seem like he's somebody that's just a listener? 
I mean, if you read, because we know a lot about Peter, we know the type of person that Peter was. He just don't seem like a very good listener, does he? I mean, Peter's one of those guys that he's a guy of action. I mean, he's ready to fight. He's ready to go. I mean, he's ready. Come on. I mean, he's the dude that, that whenever they were coming to arrest Jesus, he's the guy that grabbed a sword and just started swinging. He's like, I'm going to cut somebody, you know. Somebody's going to die today, you know. Let's go. You know, he's ready to go. And he ends up cutting Malchus's ear off, you know. And what does Jesus do? Jesus heals the ear. Peter's the same guy that when they're out in the water, and the storm's coming, and, and they see this figure walking on the water, and they look out, and they think it's a ghost. And then Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid, it's just me. And then, he's, and, he, and, then, and then what happened? Peter's like, hey, if it's really you, then tell me to come, come to you. And Jesus is like, come on. And Peter's the only one that gets out of the boat. I mean, this guy's a doer, and everybody says, yeah, but he fell. He began to sink. He still got out of the boat. Nobody else got out of the boat, right? Nobody else got out of the boat. All the rest of them stayed in the boat, but Peter got out, okay? And I know that we could go on. I mean, Peter was the first to recognize who Christ was. Oh, he said, he said who, Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, what? Oh, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He knew who he was, but then there was also times where, you know, Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. He said that to Peter. Peter's also the guy that denied Christ three times because he was scared to be associated with him. But Peter was a doer. He was impulsive. He was the one that was always wanting to be a doer. And then there's Andrew. I love Andrew. It's great hearing the stories about Andrew. Peter's little brother, Andrew, had been a disciple of John the Baptist, and he had accepted uh, John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And you know what else Andrew did? Here's one of the coolest things that Andrew did. After Andrew's learning about, he's, he's hearing this, he goes and he gets his big brother Peter and says, hey, you've got to come hear about this man. That's who Andrew was. Andrew was somebody. But then Andrew had his flaws too. You remember the uh, feeding of the 5,000? When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, Andrew was the one that spoke up and said, you know, we had this boy's lunch of five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? A lot of faith, that guy, huh? I mean, how far is this really going to go? And then we have names like James and John. They're brothers, and they're usually listed together, and, and the title Sons of Zebedee because of their fighting spirit. I mean, these guys were... These guys were just ready to fight too. Jesus would give would later give them the name Sons of Thunder because of this fighting spirit. But each one is unique in their own right. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He even wrote Revelation. John also uh, uh, gave himself a title. <laughs> it's kind of cool. John said uh, in his Gospel he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. And that, and that, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine? He's right. He's like, and the disciple that Jesus loved. In other words, he loves me. Can I tell you, it's okay that we can tell everyone that Jesus loves us. There's nothing wrong with John giving himself that label. I mean, they had some flaws, but man, they had some good things too. And, and James was the first apostle to be martyred. 
And that concludes the first group. The rest of them we don't know as much about, but we do know a little bit. There's Philip. Philip begins the next group. He's not to be confused with the Philip that is mentioned in the book of Acts. He was the mathematical one in the bunch. When feeding the 5,000, he starts crunching numbers. <laughs> Think about it. He's sitting back here, and he's counting. He's like, one. okay, we got, there's about 5,000 here. But then you got the women and children, you know. So they're all, okay. And then he comes, and he says, you know, he says, hey, um, hey guys, I just want to tell you all, I've been crunching the numbers. And the fact is that eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Okay, that's just the truth there is. Okay, we, we can't do this. You could say that he was slow to comprehend spiritual truth here, right? He was just a little bit slow at it. And then there's Bartholomew. He's next. In some places, they call him Nathaniel. So Bartholomew and Nathaniel, they're the same person. In uh, John, Philip invites him to come see Jesus of Nazareth. And he makes the comment this, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So he, he was the first to doubt Jesus as Messiah. How can anything good come of Nazareth? Thomas is next. <laughs> Do any of you know what he's known for? <laughs> Everybody doubting, man. He's, he's forever labeled with this label, right? He will always be known as doubting Thomas. He can't live it down. He's the one that says at one point, I will have to see the scars of Jesus before I'll believe it is him. He was always seeing the dark side, right? He's a little pessimistic. But you know one thing about Thomas was he was loyal. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and some of the disciples were concerned about going back to Judea because there were Jews there that had tried to stone him before. And Thomas makes this statement. To the other disciples, Thomas said this, let us go that we may die with him. <laughs> That's loyalty, right? This guy was loyal. He's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight right alongside him. And then there's the author of our text, Matthew. He describes himself here by his former profession, tax collector. You know what? Tax collectors were the lowest in the Jewish society. They were considered sellouts. Man, they worked for Rome, and they collected taxes taxes from their own people for the Roman government. And this brings us to the last four, okay? And these we don't know a whole lot about at all. James, we, we know that he is the son of Alphaeus because it tells us, probably used to show used to show that he was different from the other James that's mentioned. Uh, he's also called uh, James the Less. That probably means that he was younger than the first James. Then there's Thaddeus, or in some places... Uh, he's called Justice, son of James. We don't know much. Then Simon. Simon was a zealot. He was a, a fanatical, a, a nationalist, uh, a radical. He was, some considered him sworn assassin, assassins. An interesting fact here is that Jesus had in his same circle of 12, he had a zealot and he had a tax collector. Can I tell you that those two did not get along? I mean, I'm not saying that in the 12 they didn't get along. I'm saying in regular day-to-day -day life, outside of this circle, this circle of 12, a tax collector and a zealot would not get along at all. And here Jesus is bringing them into the same circle of 12. There might have even been a hit put on Matthew, for all we know, because he was a tax collector. And that's something uh, that would have been done back then. And Jesus had both of these men, the same group, 
And then the last one mentioned is Judas Iscariot. The name Iscariot is probably a compound word meaning the man from Kirioth. Thus, Judas's hometown was Kirioth in southern Judea, making him the only one of the twelve who was not from Galilee. He, it was Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus to his enemies, and then he committed suicide. And my text ends here today. I went through each of these so that you would understand something. And I want you to understand about this motley crew that, that Jesus picked, this group of misfits. He gave them the authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He gave these 12 guys the authority he basically said, guys, I need laborers. I'm using you. This was a motley group. This was a motley crew. Man, these guys did not. They weren't religious leaders. They never, they hadn't been to the best of schools. Their occupations ranged from uh, you know, fishermen to tax collector to a zealot, a nationalist. I mean, these guys were all over the place. They weren't your typical people that you would think in religious circles that would be put together, but yet Jesus chose these 12. They weren't perfect, and at this point, they were still new believers in who Jesus was. They had only been with Jesus for just over a year. Most of what Jesus said was new to them, and the truth is Jesus chose them. So I want to say to you this morning, if you don't get anything else that I tell you, if you don't understand anything else, I want you to understand this. If you think you are unworthy to be a worker for the Lord, then just look at this group of misfits. If you ever think that you're not worthy, if you ever think that you're not able to do something great and mighty for God, just look at this group. And after this list of names, we see in Scripture where Jesus gives them instructions. He basically gives them a three-part sermon. Three-part sermons are always easy to follow, right? You know, if there's three parts, you know that once the preacher gets to number three, you know, hey, we're about to leave and go to lunch. That's what you know about a three-part sermon. I don't have a three-part sermon today. Actually, I do have three points I'm going to give you in just a moment. But he gives them a three-point sermon, verses 5 through 42 of Matthew chapter 10. This is Jesus' next sermon. He's already had the Sermon on the Mount. He told us where we needed to be. He raised the standard up to where we needed to be. He brought us, lifted us up to the standard. And now he's got this group of 12. He's sending them out for them to do the work. And he comes on and he gives them a sermon. His next sermon listed here in Matthew is a sermon that he gives to his band of misfits real quickly verses 5 through 15 he's telling them about their calling verses 16 through 23 he is telling them about the consequences they could face what could happen to them verses 24 through 42 he uses the sermon to give them the courage they need to go and do what he was calling them to do and i want to end today by reading one verse from this last part verse 38 verse 38 Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We hear this a lot, don't we? Take up your cross. You must take up your cross and follow me. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean when he says, take up your cross? Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. 
Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Do you see my three-point sermon? Jesus adds another step here from what he had and said in Matthew. And he's talking to more than just his disciples. He's talking to a crowd of people at this time. And it has now become a three-step process. It was already that in Matthew. It just took him more words to say, deny yourself in Matthew. But in order to be Jesus' disciple, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross, and you must follow Jesus. So real quick, let's break that down. Number one, denying yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? To deny self means to put aside our own selfish desires in order to follow Jesus and serve his purposes, whatever the cost. Jesus is telling you that, excuse me, that you may have to forsake personal comfort. You may have to put aside social enjoyments. You may have the people of this world not like you, and can I tell you that's okay, right? Whatever your grand plans and ambitions are, they may have to be placed on the back burner. Material wealth, you may never see that. Even your life itself may end. That is denying yourself. You have to determine in your heart that you want what God wants. You want to live your life for Jesus and no one else. I want Jesus' will for me. I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to be who he wants me to be. I want to say and speak what he wants me to say and speak. I want to live differently. The second part of that is take up your cross. When you take up your cross, you're making a deliberate choice to deny your own selfish interests and your own way of life, and you are boldly identifying with Christ. Think about the cross for a moment. For us, it's, it's this beautiful symbol of hope, sacrifice, and love, right? I mean, we hang crosses everywhere, don't we? We put them on our walls. I mean, we put crosses, you know, around our neck. We, we have, we have T-shirts with crosses on them. We have crosses everywhere. And we think of crosses as a beautiful symbol. Can I tell you, it wasn't very beautiful back in Jesus' day. Cross was an ugly piece of crucifixion. You would never see anyone putting crosses on their walls. That would be like us putting an electric chair on our wall today, okay? That's what it would be like. You know, I mean, can you imagine people walk into your house and all of a sudden they, they take a glance? Is there a reason why you've got an electric chair on your wall? I mean, they're going to be thinking, there's something wrong with you. You're not right. You're kind of crazy. I mean, that's what it would be like if, if people from Jesus' day were, kind of, were able to somehow go forward in time 2,000 years and they come to us they're going to think we're all a bunch of nut jobs because we got crosses hanging on our walls. But for us, the cross is a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of love. It's a symbol of freedom. It's a symbol that Jesus went to the cross and he died on that cross for us. It's an important symbol. So what is Jesus asking us to do is he is, he is be willing to follow him even to our death. We must be willing to identify with Christ and his sufferings, allowing our own reputations to become wrapped up in our devotion to him. The choice between living for ourselves or living for Christ must be made daily. 
the sentence that follows this statement in many of the passages in our text, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39 says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Can I tell you that all four Gospels use this statement in their writings? Two of the Gospels use it more than once, and it is paired with the statement of carrying your cross or taking up your cross. John chapter 12, verse 25 says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. No other statement from Jesus received as much attention by the gospel writers. It doesn't mean that you have to physically lose your life. It could possibly happen, but it doesn't mean that it will happen. Sometimes the greater challenge is continuing to live faithfully for him during difficult situations. You remember a few weeks ago when I said Jesus raised the standard for us to live at. He raised the standard. For us to live at and he lifted us to that standard the problem is we want to bring that standard down here so that it's you know it's comfortable it's easier for us to hang in there it's easier for us to walk and do the things that we want to do the easier for us to live the problem is jesus said here's the standard i want you to move to this standard move to a higher standard move to a higher place the problem is we've brought that standard down where it's comfortable for us, but we got to move that standard back up. Carry, we need to, uh, we have to pick up and carry our own cross. That's what it means. And the third thing is follow me. The word follow figuratively refers to the process of following someone as a disciple. The word literally refers to following after someone physically. It's used this way, both ways, in the New Testament. However, in the New in the New Testament, it is also sometimes used as a term for becoming a disciple. These two concepts are not fully distinct. Jesus' disciples did, in fact, literally follow him around, but they also left behind their former lives to devote themselves fully to him. When you decide to follow Christ, you're deciding to be a disciple of We've been talking lately, the last few weeks, about hearts. About a heart. A heart change. It's about the heart. Discipleship is about the heart. It's about changing our hearts to be who God wants us to be, to live and become all that God wants us to be. Discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher, to learn from and become more like them. Jesus is our teacher, amen? So discipleship fundamentally involves all of one's being, not just the mind or intellect. All of the biblical terms used to convey the concept of discipleship involve more than just academic engagement. Moses made it clear that the teaching of the law was meant to result in obedience to what it said rather than just intentional acceptance. To sum all of this up, it is a heart change, amen? We have to make a heart change to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. It requires a heart change. If you did not change your heart the day you said a prayer to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, then that prayer was just lip service. There has to be a change take place in your heart. If you have not made a commitment with your heart, then you need to reevaluate your life. Make a change today and let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Amen? I promise you this. 
And I'm wrapping up. Jesus loves you. I don't have to tell you anything else. I want you to know this. Jesus loves you. He only wants what is best for you. Think about all that you think is best. Throw it out. Because if that doesn't match up with what God wants, that's not the best. Do you hear me? If what you, your desires, your plans, all that, if it doesn't match up with what God wants for you, it's not the best. That means that you may have something down here, but guess what? God may have something far greater. You may have some thoughts that, man, this would be nice to have. This would be nice to do. This would be nice to go. Nice place to be a part of. And God's saying, but I've got something far greater and far higher than you could ever imagine waiting for you. See, you don't have to understand it all, right? You don't have to understand the journey that it takes to get there. It may not be a great journey. How many has ever gone on a journey and you thought you were never going to get to your destination? <laughs> right? The GPS lied to me. <laughs> right? The fact is you just didn't pull off on the right road. But we get on a journey and we start navigating. And we think, man, this is terrible. This is awful. And then you get to the trip and what happens? It's the best trip you ever had. But the journey took a while to get there, didn't it? It took a while to get there. Can I tell you that sometimes you don't have to understand the roads that God's taking you on. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand the bumps and the bruises and all the chaos and all the craziness that happened. All you have to understand is that God has a plan for you and he has a, a destination for you to get to, for you to become all that he wants you to be. And you just have to be on that journey so that you can reach the destination that God is bringing you to. Amen? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. All you have to know is that Jesus wants what's best. And by us surrendering our life to him and becoming a disciple of Jesus, that is how we become the best. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for allowing us to be here in this house today. I thank you for every person that's here, God. I thank you for every person that has come this morning, God. They've come for whatever reason. You knew the people that were going to be here to hear this message today. God, you knew the people that will be watching at home that, that were going to be able to uh, watch this message today, that was going to be able to be there and watch it, Lord God. And I pray for every person that is here. God, I pray that you would touch their hearts. God, I pray that you would speak to their lives. God, I pray that they would receive you in a mighty way. God, I pray that you do a work, do a work in the lives and the families of those that are here. God, I pray that you touch every heart, Lord God, that as we open up our lives to you, God, help us to become the disciples that you've called us to be, those that you want us to become. Father, I praise you and I give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Lord, it's so good, amen. Hallelujah. I want to just make a couple of announcements. Um, men's retreat this year is